Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Vivi Ganeshan Anthon on her latest novel, Brotherless Night. Vivi Ganeshan Anthon is the author of Love Marriage, which was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Her work has appeared in Granta, The New York Times, and The Best American Non Required Reading, among others. Brotherless Night, her new novel, which we're going to talk about today, draws on two decades of research into the Sri Lankan Civil War. Since 2017, she has co-hosted a podcast called Fiction Nonfiction with novelist Whitney Terrell about the intersection of literature and news. And she currently teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. And I should say also that she also goes by Sugi, so that's what I'll be referring to her as. Sugi, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe the novel. Sure. Um, The novel is set during the earliest years of the Sri Lankan Civil War, and it starts in 1981 and goes through about the first decade. And it's from the first person point of view of a woman who is, at the beginning of the novel, a teenager. And it's told in a deep retrospection from her her middle-aged recollection of those years. So in 2009, the year that the war ends, she's remembering how it began. And she, at that time, when she's a teenager, is dreaming of going to medical school and doesn't really imagine how war will disrupt her plans, not only for her own education, but also in relation to kind of the integrity of her family uh, and sort of the fates of not only herself, but also her parents, her siblings, her friends. So the novel is really about kind of the impact on specifically um, minority civilians, minority Tamil civilians in the northern Sri Lankan city of Jaffna, where the bulk of the novel is set. And it's, and it's about um, the impact of, kind of the militarization of society on young people, on students, on people who are kind of the, the backbone of, of civil society, educators, you know, universities, libraries, the people who work in these places and love them and kind of keep the institutions that that make uh, discourse and kind of civilized society possible and what happens to those places and those people under these circumstances. So I was trying to write a novel set in Jaffna about these young people who are facing these really difficult circumstances. Now, it's apparently taken you nearly as long as the Sri Lankan civil war lasted for you to write (laughs) the novel. 
So tell us about the writing process. Why so long? Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, I started writing the novel in 2004, um, in the very early 2004. And I had gone to Sri Lanka and come back and on the way had stopped actually in London, where someone I knew well had handed me a book that was very influential for the writing of Brothers Night called The Broken Palmyra, which is by a group called University Teachers for Human Rights, Jaffna. And it's a group of four university professors who, with the aid of many others, work to document kind of the civilian experience with not only the oppression and actions of the Sri Lankan government, but also the actions of Tamil militants who were separatists and also Indian peacekeeping forces. So these were all groups that were present during the first decade when um, Tamil civilians were sort of caught in the crossfire of of all of these different tensions where the militants were were fighting for what they said was, they said they, they sort of declared themselves, specifically the Tamil Tigers declared themselves the sole representatives of the Tamil people and said that they were fighting for a separate state. And the same group of people were dealing with kind of the oppression of successive Sri Lankan governments. So anyway, I, this is obviously a very tangled history. And so this was 2004 was the beginning of my kind of wading into that and trying to learn how to explain it, um, how to make peace with the failure, the eternal failure to exhaustively explain it, and to also gain an understanding that I felt comfortable with, because it's like a pretty labyrinthine conflict. It involves a lot of different players, a lot of different sets of politics, a lot of different atrocities, a lot of different moments of people behaving in extraordinary, both extraordinarily good and extraordinarily brutal ways. And so the research was really difficult. And in 2004, I was handed this book, which was this nonfiction book that in many ways, is, it's sort of the nonfiction. My book is very much a fictional homage to that book and is trying to do some of the things, same things that it does, which, you know, to center the civilian experience. And I also was seeking to kind of document and set down experiences that I knew to be common knowledge in our community, but that people had not recorded or were not commonly or frequently recorded or, or that people had not admitted to. So um, there is certainly some attempt for it to be a hyper-realistic book because I felt that people had attempted to erase very real parts of the story. And you know the, the groups that I just mentioned, the government, the Tamil militants, Indian peacekeepers, all of these different people had left parts out of their stories that I knew to be true. And so I just spent a ton of time researching and verifying the things that I put in the book, which is not to say that it's not a novel, but I think a lot of the research that I did, I was trying to make sense of the war and also to figure out which parts of what I knew to be true I could put on a fictional page and make feel real, which, yeah. So I think I was sort of approaching realism as a political act, which I hope that in an era of fake news, like realism in fiction, I think should matter. And I think it also made it possible for people who might have been less comfortable talking to me if I had been, say, a traditional reporter, because I was entering the story with maybe less of a clear agenda. I think it hopefully made space for people who hadn't talked to someone about the things that had happened to them to tell me things that I didn't know, or to confirm things that I did know, or to correct me about misapprehensions I might have had. So all of this was was very, very messy. And also contained quite a bit of violent material that it took me a long time to process. And I think it took me a long time to figure out the shape of the story. And now 
the bulk of the book does take place in Sri Lanka, as I mentioned. And the main character is recalling her childhood from the vantage point of New York City in 2009. There used to be other chunks of the book in New York City, you know, hundreds of pages that were chucked in the course of the 18 years that it took me to write the book. So I think I had to write some some fake books, some incorrect books before writing this one. And those pages had to come out and then also had to be had to be thrown away. So getting through all of that material was was a lot. And I think um, maybe also at the beginning of trying to work on the project, I didn't necessarily have the skills to do all of that research. So I had to learn and be taught by various experts how to do it. When the book starts proper in 1981, as you said, there's a a short prologue set in 2009 in New York. So in 1981, what is the status of the Tamil people in Sri Lanka as a minority? Sure. So Sri Lanka um, became independent in 1948, and it has um, many different ethnic communities there is a majority Sinhalese ethnic group. There are several different minority Tamil communities. There is um, a largely Tamil-speaking Muslim minority. There are Eurasian populations, indigenous populations. So in 1981, there had been, for a number of years, communal violence, anti-Tamil violence, um, government policies that did discriminate against um, minorities. And there had been some sort of murmurs of militant resistance and militant organization. There had been a couple of assassinations. There had been maybe shortly before that, there was a conference, a, a Tamil conference that was held and there was some some violence there, which the book refers to. So there's many, many decades post-British um, British officials leaving Sri Lanka and it becoming an independent country. There's several decades of ethnic tension leading up to the events of 1981. And the book kind of begins with Tamil political parties kind of making rumblings about fighting for, you know, better political status for Tamils, for for thinking about, um, you know, what is it that what is it that Tamil people should have? What kinds of what forms of self determination would satisfy them? What sort of sort of recourse to the discrimination that they've experienced? What is it that the majority Sinhalese government is is attempting to accomplish, et cetera, et cetera? So the book kind of begins with some scene setting about. The events of previous decades, including the family themselves, the teenagers kind of hearing from their parents about what has happened in previous generations and reading books. And then one of the brothers works at the Jaffna Public Library. And in 1981, the Jaffna Public Library was burned down by um, a state-aligned mob. And a lot of valuable materials, as well as a very important community space, was destroyed. It was a historic building, historic collection. And that event was kind of a cataclysm in the historical memory of this community and this war. So that's why it starts in 1981. And and some of that discontent is what leads up to that. Um, Some of those some of those tensions over things like discrimination over use of language, discrimination over space in educational institutions or access to land, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of fighting over resources and a lot of incidents like riots, several inc- different and distinct instances of communal riots in the decades leading up to leading up to 1981. But I chose to start in 1981 because, because of the library burning. So the library burning in Jaffna is one of the sort of inciting incidents in the book. And there's also riots at r- roughly the same time in Colombo, um, a time called Black July. So what was that? 
Sure. Um, the Black July riots are often marked as the beginning of the war. They happen in 1983. And the acute or sort of the inciting incident there is that state aligned mobs, mobs sort of undaunted by the state, undeterred by the state, um, attacked Stummel homes and businesses and people. And the proximate cause of that was the death by ambush of Singley soldiers, specifically, I think 13 Singley soldiers who died by ambush at the hands of Thummel militants. Um, the Thummel militants who, of course, had organized in response to state violence before that, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can kind of keep tracing that fuse back if you want. But so the Singley soldiers were killed and their bodies were brought to the capital city of Colombo, which was something that various people had advised against, like, oh, if these, if these bodies come here, this will lead to violence. And um, so those warnings went unheeded by the people who were trying to kind of prevent what happened. And so the bodies came to Colombo for burial and the mob kind of in response to this began to attack minority Thummel people and would do things like, you know, try to try to question people, you know, try to get them to, to say certain words in Sinhalese or to identify people by certain, like, say, Hindu religious marks associated with Thummels or to ask, you know, who lives here. And, and in some cases, right, the common knowledge about this, and this has been really well documented, is that voter registration included ethnicity and that some of these members of these mobs had access to voter rolls, which identified places where Tamil people lived or where, um, you know, who was, who was resident in certain places. So it became very possible to target specifically Tamil people. So during this period of time, there was a massive number of, there were casualties, um, you know, which I think accounting on this varies, but I think probably the common knowledge on this is at least a few thousand people. There's probably some people who would argue for more. There are certainly others who would argue for less, but sort of without question, a lot of, a lot of damage. And a third of Colombo is Thummel approximately. I'm not sure that that percentage was the same then, but it could have been actually more, but like, I mean, now a significant chunk of Colombo is Thummel. So is it a really like it was a Thummel people are an integral part of the community, integral part of the capital city. And all of a sudden, you know, they were not safe. And so many people emigrated after this. Others chose not to or were not able to. But many people sought refuge in other countries. And also because of this incident, and very, very few people like I, there was basically no holding anyone accountable for the violence that occurred, like the state did nothing about this for like, no, the president did not say anything about this for a number of days. So for a lot of Sri Lankan Tamil people, like this event is kind of a byword and has its own mythology. And I think like in many families, many families have their own stories of that time period. Like this is what happened to this member of my family. They were displaced in this way. They emigrated in to this country for this reason. Um, this person went missing X, Y, and Z. So I had to invent that for the family that I wrote about, which meant doing a lot of research to kind of understand what it was like on the ground to be in a house in Colombo um, when that was going on, or maybe to hear about it from somewhere else. So that event is like a significant historical kind of rupture. And it was a huge recruiting ground. It was recruiting, recruiting fodder for the Tamil militants who, in the wake of this incident, were able to really go to kind of young Tamil men and say, you experienced this, and this is the opportunity we can offer you to do something in response. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Vivi Ganeshan Anthem. We're talking about her novel, Brotherless Night. And so, Sugi, we spent most of the first half talking about the terrible history of the uh, Sri Lankan Civil War. So let's let's spend some time talking about your characters who inhabit that world. Um, Sashi, who is the the narrator of the story. Tell us something about who she is. Sure. Sashi, the narrator of the book, is almost 16 when it starts, and she wants to be a doctor. And her grandfather is one of her heroes, and and he was a doctor, and her late grandfather, and her oldest brother is also a doctor. So it's kind of her dream to follow in their footsteps. And she has kind of high-minded principles about how she might might do that. And she is also very compelled by uh, a friend of her brother's who lives just down the lane from them. And he also is, he's kind of also an academic role model slash maybe competition. And she has kind of complex feelings about him as well. So as the novel proceeds, she um, tries to get into medical school and she finds herself in different frameworks than she imagined for the practice of medicine. And so she has to kind of make decisions about who will she treat and how, um, who does she trust and why, what will she say yes to? She's asked for a great deal by both her family, members of her community, Thummel militants, uh, people who are critical of Thummel militants. And so she's facing a lot of demands from all sides. And she also starts to realize she has some demands of herself and she's not sure she can meet all of those. So she's kind of trying to find her way through a pretty messy situation where she also has extraordinary talents that a lot of people are interested in capitalizing on. And so she has four brothers um, who all play significant parts in the story. Um, Tell us something about her brothers. 
her oldest brother, Naranjan, is a doctor. Um, he's just kind of the golden child of the family. He's very, very close to his sister and, and trusted and liked and relied upon by all of his brothers, although they're very different from each other. And he's, he's quite a bit older than her. Um, her second brother, Thylan, is interested in being an engineer, and he works at the Jaffna Public Library. And kind of unusually for someone interested in engineering, he also loves to read novels. Um, her third brother, Selin, is a year older than her the same age as her his friend down the road Kay who I mentioned earlier and he also wants to be an engineer and he's extremely kind of very charismatic and also very smart and a little bit hot tempered and then her her one younger brother Aaron is kind of maybe a talkative and very political and readerly readerly young guy who has a lot of political questions about the way that his world is going and and who's kind of the beloved baby of the family and the character Kay, who you said is the the character that Sashi is fascinated with and looks up to and is a friend, uh, particularly of her brother, Silan. I was just interested in the decision. He's, we, he's only known as Kay in the story. And there's one other character that he's connected with, um, one of his tutors, both of them being eventually heavily involved in the um, in the Tamil Tigers. But tell us something, first of all, about the decision to not give them their names. Um, so it's interesting. I've been asked this question a couple of times. So I've had a, a lot of opportunity to think about it. I think I finally realized that, I mean, first of all, when one is writing and kind of mucking around, there's lots of times that you're not making conscious decisions. You're trying to just trust your gut. And so I, the first bit of this book that I came upon was a little bit of research that brought me to the character of Kay. And when I tried writing, there's a certain event in the book that it would be somewhat spoilery to mention, but I tried writing a version of that event and I he had a name and then he didn't have a name and he and I found that it was much easier to write about it if I wrote with him wrote about him by initial and then I think also um I'm American as your listeners can hear very American but I also I'm because I'm Sri Lankan and I'm Tamil I grew up with a lot of commonwealth literature and I think there are certain syntactical things and habits and histories like you know kind of Imagine like the old epistolary novel where someone's like, dear Mr. L, and then there's a, a, a dash, right? And it's it's just kind of like the name is not the thing that's important. So I think there's also a way in which it's hearkening to an older kind of literature and, and also to a tradition in South Asia of people using initials and names, particularly in, in South India and Sri Lanka. This is, this is not uncommon. Um, and it was a way maybe to also push back against, there's a way that writing kind of a hyper-realistic book can lead people to kind of guess, like, who are these people? And it's a way to push back on that, too. So I think it's it's maybe doing all of those things. But on the most basic level, like I think that when I first did it, I just I did it because it was the thing that allowed me to write the next sentence. And I'm not sure that like in those initial moments, I had a lot of understanding of what what about that initial was helping me to go on. But but it was the thing that made it possible for me to continue. Um, I wanted to use Kay to to have a look at the um, the separatists, but before we do that, can we talk about the idea of Tamil Elam, which is the sort of a homeland for the Tamil people in Sri Lanka? Sure, I mentioned that the Tamil Tigers declared themselves the sole representatives of the Tamil people, and I should say that not all Tamil people agreed with that. Um, and the Tigers also said that they were fighting for yeah a separate state, which was going to be in the north and east of the country, and they identified a specific territory. Um, and they called it Ulam. So that is often something that's invoked. It's probably invoked, um, has been invoked just as much overseas as it was in country. Um, I can't actually say that it's a word I've heard people use in country that much. 
but yeah that was the that was the word that they they used for it it has also sometimes i believe i would maybe like to go and fact check this but i think like is sometimes in olden times been used to refer to the entire island um but that was never the tiger's particular territorial goal but yeah it's sort of yeah it was the the idea was the goal was the goal was this thummel homeland and that would that was what it was called the tigers are i think the, the most famous group they're, they're you know a world famous separatist group but there are other separate groups there's multiple groups at the beginning of the during the novel and of course they eventually all sort of turn on each other so tell us something about the briefly about the various separatist groups sure yeah that was actually something that i really wanted to get into the novel because i think it's not common knowledge that there were other groups and that the tigers were at odds with some of them and went to pains to you know, decimate the ranks of some of the other groups. Um, so yeah, there were other groups that had maybe like sort of more developed political rhetoric or, or more more developed political thought that had more leftist political thought, depending on your point of view. Uh, so you know, sometimes there were there were a lot of differing opinions. There were differing sometimes differing origins. Um, sometimes there were splinters within groups, and so there were also atrocities committed by the groups against each other. So to name just a few of them, there was one called Plot, People's Liberation Organization of Thamalilum, I think. Is that that right? And then, so it's actually Plot, P-L-O-T-E. There was one that was E-R-O-S. Um, there was E-P-R-L-F. There's, it's like an, really an acronym stew. Um, but all of these groups were distinct from each other and would kind of follow different practices in terms of the kinds of loyalties they expected, the ways that they recruited, the areas that they might be recruiting from, the places that they trained. The tigers and other groups, I think, trained partially in India. So some of these groups had different relationships to India, to the Indian state, um, different opinions about how those should be dealt with. And they also had different relationships with civilians. And sometimes you would find families with um, multiple allegiances within the families, like one one son joining one group and another son joining another group. So um, for a long time, that was, that was something that was really challenging within the community. And I think sometimes still is. And it's really kind of, that took a lot of study to kind of, to start to understand. One other thing. So obviously talking about uh, the civil war and about the various separative groups um, and four brothers and Kay, we've been talking quite heavily about the men in the novel. Obviously, the, um, the the narrator, Sashi, is a woman and women play a role in the book. There's a Mother's Front organised group of, of mothers who are, who are at one point organised to go and free some children that have been taken by the government. Um, there's a scenes in a feminist book group in the story. And you mentioned the... Um, the book that sort of influences the Broken Palmyra, which is the um, the book from the University Teachers for Human Rights. And there's a character in the novel that I guess represents that organisation and that idea, um, Anjali Premachandran, who is, is one of um, Sashi's teachers, uh, one of her professors at medical school. Um, so tell us something about this character. Sure. Um, that character is based on the historical figure, Rajani Thiranagama, who, as I read The Broken Palmyra, just became someone that I admired a lot, who seemed to be really struggling to maintain a principled position, who was, I think, like so many other people of the time, really anguished about what was happening to her society. And she was um, a woman physician who was on the faculty at the medical school of the University of Jaffna, where she was well known as someone who had, in early days, been supportive of and interested in 
what the Tigers were talking about and who became a critic. And um, ultimately, the Tigers assassinated her. So um, over the manuscript of the Broken Palmyra. And she's a remarkable writer. There's a lot of her writing in the world, including significant chapters of the Broken Palmyra, in which she wrote about the lives of women, how they were impacted by sexual violence during the war, the care that they went to great lengths to provide for the people in their families. Yeah, the ways that they were the ways that they were uniquely impacted by these situations, as I think women are distinctively impacted by war everywhere. So um, her sister is actually the narrator of the audiobook and gives a remarkable and stunning performance. It's, she's also someone who is a lifelong activist, Nirmala Rajasingham, who is from Jaffna and who lived through this time period. And um, so to hear that story told in, in Nirmala's remarkable voice um, was just a big honor for me. And anyway, so I think Rajni Dharanagama seems to have had a huge impact on people as a teacher. Um, so just as someone who was trying to extend all sorts of grace to others and who was aware of her own imperfections and her fear that she wouldn't know in these situations necessarily what to do, that she would be as, you know, as brave and loving as possible. And given the pressure on classrooms now at all levels, for example, in the United States where I teach, to see that kind of example of an educator who was so present for her students was really moving. And it was important to me to put her in the story in some way to imagine, since I didn't get to meet her, to imagine her. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes, I would be delighted. So I am going to read the beginning of the book. And as I mentioned earlier, it starts with Sashi in New York in 2009. I recently sent a letter to a terrorist I used to know. He lives near me, here in New York City. And when I opened the envelope and slid in the note that said, I would like to come and see you, I thought of how much he had always required of me and how little I had ever asked of him. Even when I was growing up in Sri Lanka, before I had ever heard the word terrorist, I knew that if a certain kind of person wanted something done, I should comply without asking too many questions. I met a lot of these sorts of people when I was younger, because I used to be what you would call a terrorist myself. We were civilians first. You must understand, that word, terrorist, is too simple for the history we have lived. Too simple for me. Too simple even for this man. How could one word be enough? But I'm going to say it anyway, because it is the language you know, and it will help you to understand who we were, what we were called, and who we have truly become. We begin with this word, but I promise that you will come to see that it cannot contain everything that has happened. Someday the story will begin with the word civilian, the word home. And while I am no longer the version of myself who met with terrorists every day, I also want you to understand that when I was that woman, when two terrorists encountered each other in my world, what they said first was simply hello, like any two people you might know or love. Part One, A Near Invisible Scar. Chapter One, The Boys with the Jaffna Eyes. Jaffna, 1981. I met the first terrorist I knew when he was deciding to become one. Kay and his family lived down the road from me and mine in one village of the Tamil town called Jaffna in Sri Lanka. The Jaffna Peninsula is the northernmost part of the country. Many people have died there, some killed by the Sri Lankan army and the state, some by the Indian peacekeeping force, and some by the Tamil separatists, 
whom you know as the terrorists. Many people, of course, have also lived. In early 1981, I was almost 16 years old. I already wanted to become a doctor like my grandfather, and I had recently begun attending my brother's school, where girls my age were accepted for advanced-level studies. In those days, I thought mostly about the university entrance exams. Kay, too, dreamed of medical school. And this was what made us alike, long before Kay chose the movement, long before I treated patients in a New York City emergency room, long before we became so different. Kay had the upper hand from the first, not because he was one year older or a boy, but because I was his patient. Our meeting was both gruesome and fortunate for me. On the day that we met, I was boiling water for tea. I had to use a piece of cloth to hold the pot's metal handle. But that morning, the cloth slipped. The handle slipped, and the pot slipped, pouring scalding water all over me. I screamed and screamed for my mother, Amma! My shrill voice carried out onto the road where Kay was passing. Letting his bicycle fall in the dirt at our gate, he ran inside. By the time he reached me in the kitchen at the back of the house, Amma had already found me. As bubbles rose and popped on my skin, I shut my eyes, but I could hear her sobbing and the sounds of pots and pans clattering to the floor. With every clang, heat flared around and inside me. Under my skin, another skin burned. I cried and called for Murahan, Pelaire, Shiva. Sashi, he said. I opened my eyes to his face without recognizing it. Sit, he said, and pointed to a chair. When I kept screaming but did not move, he grabbed my hands, pushed me down into the chair, and peeled my blouse up, bearing my scorched stomach. I heard Amma's ayo beside me, as though she were speaking from a great distance. Snatching a bowl of eggs off the table, Kay began cracking them onto the wounds. I have to fetch water, Amma said. Clutching a pan, she tried to move past him. But he put his shoulders between her and the doorway. This will cool the burn, he said. She stood there uselessly. I stared at him, trying to focus on anything but the pain, and saw only his thumbs working in and out of the eggshells, scraping the slime of the whites cleanly onto the swelling rawness. He did it very swiftly, as though he had had a lot of practice, as though every scrap of egg was precious. My skin was so hot that even now, when I remember those quick and clever hands and the slippery shock of relief, I cannot quite believe that the eggs did not just cook on my flesh. When the last one was cracked and steaming on my skin, Kay looked up at Amma. Are there more? She did not respond, still stunned. More eggs, he said. She blinked, then nodded. Good, keep covering the burn. I'll go for the doctor. When Kay returned with the physician half an hour later, the older man looked over the makeshift dressing with approval. It should heal, he said. You may not even have a scar. My own mother used to crack eggs onto burns. This is not the kind of medicine they teach in school. Whose idea was it? Kay glanced at me without saying anything. I crackled inside still. I didn't know what to do, Alma said softly. His idea, I said. So I began as Kay's patient, though he ended as mine. So I've been talking to Vivi Ganeshan Anthon. We've been talking about her novel Brotherless Night. Sugi, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. I appreciate it, and I really enjoyed the conversation. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.